This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast that covers all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today, uh, as I often am in December, uh, with Rita Olmsted and David Boucher to talk about 2021 in review and get their predictions uh, for 2022. Uh, David, Reed, how are you all? Doing well, Hill. Thanks. This is always a fun and humbling conversation to have. So uh, thanks for inviting us back for another beating. Yeah, thanks so much. I I just cannot, I cannot believe it's been one year since we've done this, but I do remember last year being a lot of fun. Even, even if I don't remember exactly what I said, it was a fun time. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And uh, like Reed said, ready to face whatever reality happened and whatever the delta was between my prediction and, and that. So... Well, I, I don't know if that was coincidence or not, but, but Delta is is quite the pun given. Oh, come on. Okay, so for, no, <laughs> I am I am not. No, no. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, Hill, but for the benefit of the audience. No, that was uh, no, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> you worked on that all night. <laughs> well, so, so um, I, I guess a, a couple things to, just to look at for 21. You know, we spoke about New Year's resolutions last year and uh, I don't know if you guys re- remember, but David, you were fairly conservative in your ambition and you wanted to sleep more this year. So, so, so how did that play out for you? Yeah, you know, it's actually funny you say that because, look, you know, Delta COVID, it, it has been terrible. But I think at this point, you would find that people would have found the good that came along with the bad. And for me, you know, working for a company like I just market where they've allowed the colleagues some flexibility especially in France, where, you know, the government has been very clear, like work from home if you can. Mm-hmm. And so it's cut out the commute quite drastically. And I think I'm regularly up to seven and a half, eight hours. And I have no children, right? So I'm sure that makes a big difference. But yeah, the, the sleeping more uh, has been huge. Uh, and I don't actually know how I functioned before because I just feel so much better. Like this, it's such a simple thing, but it's so key. So Check checkbox for me on that New Year's resolution. Do you remember what reads was? Uh, I, I do. So, so no, not at all. I'm looking forward to hearing you say it though. I'm proud Reed. to say I don't either. Oh, you don't? No. Well, there were two things. So, so, so one, you you wanted to keep the beard, and for, for those of you listening, we, we can't see the camera, but Reed has successfully kept his beard this year. Um, the the other one, there have been there have been days where I've just wanted to, you know go off the deep end and pull out the clippers, but I've, I've managed to stay, stay firm in that resolution. Well, I'll add so, this one. It looks like you've cleaned up a little bit. You look good. I mean, I know the audience can't see it, but it's a very well-maintained, <laughs> like sculptured beard. So well done. <laughs> yes. David, I appreciate that. Some might call it a beard for radio. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so the other ambition or, or the other uh, resolution was more ambitious. 50 push-ups per day for the year of 21. Yeah, I maintained that for a few months and then I stopped and I've actually started again recently. I've my boys suckered me into jujitsu and when I was in high school I wrestled and um and so I've started doing that and you know I used to do 
I used to do triathlons and I've shifted away trying to find a new challenge. So uh, I was trying to do 50 push-ups a day back earlier in the year. I stopped and now I have returned to doing it. So uh, we'll say I, I half met that one. And is that now on the 2022 cards? No, I think for 2022, I'm going to um, I'm going to commit. You know, if you ever read the uh, the old comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, which is one of my oh, favorites, yeah. actually, I actually read a book by Bill Watterson about how he wrote Calvin and Hobbes. He's a very secluded guy, like he's he's almost like a recluse. But he wrote this book, and and one of the ones that uh, one of the comic strips of Calvin and Hobbes that I always loved was the two are walking along, and and Hobbes is this stuffed tiger that that Calvin gives a personality to Hobbes, or Calvin's like a six year old boy in in this imaginary world, and. And I just remember this conversation he had with his stuffed tiger where he said, I'm not going to make a resolution. I think the world needs to change to fit me. (laughs) So I'm going to steal that line from Calvin and say, I'm not going to make a resolution. I'm going to let the world change to me this year. Oh, that that comic strip hits so different when you read it. (laughs) Rather than a child. Oh, man. Yeah. Such a a mix of emotions. But uh, I like that line, though. It's good. Bill, what what are you gonna? Are you looking at any resolutions this year? I uh, I don't know. So so last year, my, mine was to listen to more uh, audiobooks, which is somewhat of a uh, you know I, I guess a middle ground ambition. R- rather than read more books, I was gonna let someone else read more books to me. Um, <laughs> I like the fact that also you have children and it committed to spending more time with earbuds in your. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to spend more time on my phone this year. <laughs> Yeah, and I I listened to just a few, and I didn't uh, what one that was particularly good, but but the other one I lost interest in. So I, I maybe spending more time with my my kids would be a good one. The one thing that I did do this year, or so far, it's it's December tenth. I have run at least two miles every day this year. That's so if I can I can make it twenty some more days, then that will be. I I want to stop running at least for one day in January. Wow, that's impressive. It's all through weather and vacations and everything. You've run two miles a day, every day. Two miles every day. We went to uh, Joshua Tree this uh, spring break, and we had to drive back. And and I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning to run for two miles before getting in the car and driving back to Texas. You sure it wasn't 1.98 miles? I am positive. <laughs> I went over to each day so that I could do it all through the freeze, uh, all of that. So, so I guess my New Year's resolution would be to, to not run at least one day uh, in 2022. <laughs> You're going to meet that on the first day, I'm sure. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. So if we're thinking then, I, I guess b- before we get into it, uh, so, so Reed, you, you are going to expect the world to do for you more <laughs> next year. And David, how about your, your resolution? Yeah, so I guess I'm nearing that age where, you know, the midlife crisis is coming along and I, I feel it. So I don't want to get like too, too deep into this podcast, but like I do feel it. But at the same time, I feel like over the course of my life, I've taken pretty good care of myself and now it's become a little bit of a game like if i grow my beard out you could tell i'm not you know just out of college but if i shave it and kind of dress a certain way like i don't look my age either right so i think more than a resolution i just have this sort of like game slash coping mechanism in my head where i want to try and look as young as possible for as long as possible so i think uh you know for 2022 that just means Keep sleeping well, keep eating as well as I can, you know, try and, and keep the stress to a minimum. 
and uh, and then really just try and delay the gray hairs on my head for as long as possible. So hopefully I've got some good news for you next year when we do this. Again. <laughs> All right. So, so David's resolution is more Botox or starting Botox and ju just for men. No, no, that's, that's for that's for next year if I fail this year. But uh, we'll try and keep it natural for the, the first go around. There you well, go. This, this will be a, uh, I guess, a, so, so in terms of midlife crises, I saw what last week, I think Britney Spears turned 40 years old. I'm, I'm telling you, like, you going back, it, all, it all just hits completely different now. I mean, it's 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 crazy. Uh yeah, I don't want to go off the deep end too soon, Hill. I got to get through this podcast, so maybe let's let's keep those kind of stats to a minimum. But yeah, yeah. yeah Madonna's what sixty three, who also made the news last week, but for other reasons. Now you're just being mean. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, we can transition into uh, our predictions for for the oil and gas sector, which I presume to do not uh, include Britney Spears and Madonna. That that would be a uh, a. a Pretty big prediction if either of them gets involved. Yeah, that, that'd be a weird turn for the business. Yeah. This year has been quite a turn for the business. How about that, David? Almost as good as the Delta Delta mention. Yeah, I'm uh, still not quite a, yeah. <laughs> quite a turn for the business in, in terms of uh, price. And last year, uh, both of you guys. So as we did this last year, there was a lot of consensus on the either or predictions bit between the two of you, which made made for a difficult uh, comparison. Um, but but I think David, you were high on that that on in terms of upside gas price or upside price risk for for North America, you had more hope on gas, but were more or I say higher expectations for gas. Um, and, and gas had a or has had an incredible year in terms of price credible to the point of, you know, causing concern for some of the winter heating bills, I guess, before about a week or so ago, things have started to come down a little bit. But based on where we are right now, uh, David, we'll start with you because you were hot from last year. Are you seeing more upside price risk on gas or uh, oil for North America? Uh, you know, I remember when I answered this question last year, my reasoning was pretty simple. And that's just like gas was quite low, it can only go higher. Uh, and oil was kind of the opposite. And I feel like Having just looked into IHS markets research, that seems to be the consensus is that uh, there will be kind of increased production from the main gas plays this year. Then at some point, like in the call it the midterm, there'll be more associated gas coming online. And so you've got kind of like mod moderating demand uh, supply coming online uh, and really it would come back to the same reason like I said last year in the other direction, which is that gas is really high now. So unless things go really nuts, I just don't see the upside to that, whereas oil, it seems like it's come down kind of recently. And you have heard there's been some comfort from certain people of around $100 oil, like that would be quote unquote mm -hmm. acceptable, right? So I think in the same reasoning as last year, but flipped, I would say if you had to say which one's got more upside, I'd say oil going into 2022. I don't remember what I said last year, which is good for everybody. Look, I think without getting too into the details, I think both are going to be pretty range bound in 22. I think, you know, the, the variable on oil is going to be the speed of the recovery. I don't think it's a supply issue. I think it's a demand issue on oil. So if we see robust demand growth, then more upside for oil. But it's hard to predict that. On the gas side, I think the bogey is China and Europe. And lately, I've heard there's talk about, you know, sort of fiat on on LNG exports. I mm -hmm. think that's probably gone away in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, if you just look at fundamentals, I think both are pretty range bound outside of extraordinary events. I think we're looking at oil. I, 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 
I mean, you could make a case, but it gets harder to make a case, I think, for oil above 85 or 90. It's supposed to be, I'm in Houston today, it's supposed to be like record high temperature today. Yesterday, we hit 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So um, I struggle to come up with a strong rally for gas. So I think that it's both pretty muted. If I were to say something, I think that there's probably more potential for upside on oil just because, you know, the status quo is, or the expectation is sort of this, you know, we've got a good outlook on demand. I think demand can surprise more to the high side than the low side. Gas, I don't think, it's hard to come up with a big surprise there, but you could come up with a much more plausible story for more demand on oil due to a faster recovery that gives, you know, a stronger upside for price. Yeah, just to be clear on the oil, you know, $100 oil, that has not come from any of my colleagues at IHS market. That's external. For, <laughs> yeah. for, the, benefit, for the benefit of the audience, uh, you know, Reed and I are probably going to say things that are, you know, that have our own personal biases on them. But if anyone really wants to know, like, what the oil story is, uh, you wouldn't talk to me. You'd talk to someone else, right? But, like, I would say... <laughs> Which one is up? Which one is down? I'd say, look, roughly speaking, yeah, if you wanted to pick one would be up relative to now. I think I see that more, you know, within oil. But like, you know, Reed said, we're not talking huge swings either way. But relatively speaking, I'd say oil over gas. Yeah. And what do you so? So the other thing, I I guess this week in Houston, what was the uh, World Petroleum Conference? Um, Well, the Congress, I think it was called. Um, And and there was a lot of comments from U.S. producers on um, you know some of the inflation concerns uh, from the government and whether or not U.S. producers should drill more, or whether or not OPEC should release more. The comments seem to be around producers not uh, drilling more, continuing to show restraint in spite of some price support, but both now in terms of gas and oil. Read from the producer side, and David, I'll come back to you on the uh, some of the oil field services side. What type of behavior are you expecting? I mean, we had huge cash flows uh, for a lot of these producers this year. Uh, are they going to continue to accept the cash or are they going to put that cash to work for oil uh, and gas? Is it going to be oil or directed or, or gas directed? Yes, all of the above. Look, with these prices that we've seen in the last, you know, six months or so, it's easy to grow a little bit. It's easy to give some cash back to investors. You know, you broke up a couple ways that we look at the business, but one that that we've really had to start focusing on is public versus private operators. And so we're seeing a real divergence in those behaviors. So we think that the we're going to get growth next year, but it's going to be percentage-wise, the private operators are going to grow much more than the public. Publics are going to, you know, they'll they'll grow some, we're thinking maybe 5-7% on average or as a as a whole more than that on the uh, on the private side. The thing is, when you look at the capital the private operators typically don't have the productive acreage or as productive acreage as the independents. So they have to spend more to get more in comparison to uh, to the public. So I think we're going to see some growth. It definitely is not going to be enough to crush price like we've seen in the past. And honestly, I'm without getting political, I think there's been a lot of pushback against the administration by pundits saying, you know, the administration is hampering supply. That's not what we believe, and as a guy that reads both political papers and industry papers and has a pretty good 
spiel on on both. Look, this is all driven by the investment community. This has nothing to do with uh, with any administrative policy or decision in my mind, and, and that never even comes up in our conversations here. So when we think about why operators are behaving this way, it's due to what investors are pushing more than anything. And I think that was what, what one of the comments made at WPC this week what was that, you know, that we have a handshake with the investors that we can't grow by more than 5% uh, in yeah. terms of supply. Yeah. So the banks did a great job getting us here, and now they're doing a great job keeping us, you know, they're doing a great job moderating supply at this point. You know, they're, the producers are, are fairly beholden to, to their lenders, much like I'm beholden to the bank who I pay my mortgage to, right? So... I can't go and spend a whole bunch of money and then be like, "Hey, uh, I'm not paying my mortgage." And that's that's how these guys are. It's like they've got to they've got to pay back their debts and and keep their investors happy. Uh, and that's more driving the supply restraint than anything else. So, David, one of the other kind of big themes for for 21 has been uh, the the great resignation and, and people quitting jobs that they were previously perhaps not unhappy in, and then some of the supply chain constraints that have, you know, at least scared me into buying, you know, kids Christmas presents three months ahead of time uh, and buying more non-spoilable goods than I need from the grocery store and, and things like that. Um, as we're looking at oil field services, do do we see the, the, the kit available and the, the, the people available to support more growth or, or the same amount of growth or no growth at all? Is there, there going to be concerns uh, on that end from uh, for 22? So, you know, Reed's team puts the production side together. And I think the, the story on the production side has been more, as, as you were saying, kind of a voluntary uh, thing rather than there being sort of a, like a limiting factor there. I think what helps North America is that there are some hyper-localized supply chains so if you compare that to like a giant offshore project somewhere, for example, uh, I think everything's coming in at least, you know, call it last mile. I mean, even if someone's having to source things elsewhere from the point of view of the operator, it's relatively hyper localized. So I don't know about, you know, on like, is there anything limiting uh, production? And the other thing, too, I'll say is that if you look at uh, things like well counts, for example, you know, these efficiencies have taken hold to the point where you can do a lot more with less than you could five, 10 years ago. So I think that kind of mitigates things as well. I don't know if this is like the right time. Well, I guess I suppose it is. So let's talk about inflation real quick. And I was thinking how I would word this in a way that wasn't too confusing because there's two dynamics here going on. So if you look at the consumer market, for example, you know, pick a category where some company says, you know, we're seeing inflation, but they're seeing inflation at the time. Some of these companies are seeing record profits. And you mm -hmm. might say, well, that's counterintuitive, right? Because you know, if in a, in a competitive market, what some company would say, I'm going to, you know, eat that margin and take market share away from someone else. So that inflation with no loss of market share, just going right to the bottom line, says that there's actually not a competitive marketplace. And the inflation, you know, is just being used basically as a way to justify cost hikes. And so bringing that back to oil field services, if there is price inflation in 2022, one could use that to assess the state, the relative health of the service market, you know, leading up to now. And so this is where it gets a little, I have to explain a little bit more is that prior to 2020, service market was quite oversupplied, right? So I don't think there's anyone left now that can, you know, not pass on just cost, right? So if personnel costs go up, you got to pass that on. I don't think anyone's around that can run a loss anymore. But if you can 
increase your prices more than what just that cost inflation is, to me, that's an indication that the market is tightening and is quote unquote healing, you know, from what it was in 2019. And then in that subset of companies that can increase prices, I'm just making this up for illustration, but let's say inflation is 7%. So there's a pool of companies that can increase over 7%. Can mm-hmm. someone increase over that of their peers? And does that indicate they're selling technology better? They're more efficient. They did their contracting more efficiently. So you can e- use these price increases to kind of gauge other things. And then the final thing I'll say is that turning to the service company side now, if you want to bring a little bit of gamesmanship into this, you can do what the consumer market CEOs are doing and say, we expect inflation to come, right? And then you're telegraphing to your operator clients that we're going to raise prices on you, right? And so you can kind of build that expectation in to sort of soften the blow when you go and redo your contract. So I think there is, there's a little bit of, um, yeah, there's a bit of strategizing you can do around inflation itself and the expectation of inflation that seems to be going on in the market right now. So, so I'm just going to jump in here because you've got a career as an MBA professor there, David. <laughs> I mean, that was the best explanation of, of sort of, you know, competitive pricing, gamesmanship, and a little behavioral science there at the end. Uh, you know, as, as long as no one went, went cross-eyed when they listened to it, because I was, I was really, <laughs> I'd rehearsed this beforehand. So hopefully I got everything across, but uh, sounds like, sounds like I'm good. So thank you. So I'm not going to quite go back to as simple as Calvin and Hobbes, but, um, when we were looking at doing our latest forecast, we're building in a significant a significant growth in rig activity. And so we didn't quite go to the uh, to the academic world that David did. We got online and looked at job postings at service sector companies. Nice. And we were yeah. like, these guys aren't hiring like there's a ramp up. Like if you look at postings for service companies in, in Midland, Odessa, they're like six. And so with that, we're like, there's got to be a cost inflation coming on the service sector side, simply because these guys aren't even like they're not even hiring in anticipation. Uh, So they're not increasing price gradually. It's going to be a knee jerk reaction, as I've heard from certain people that are in a different pay scale than me. Look, if there's a problem, just throw money at it and it goes away. Well, if you've got if you've got a contract to to, you know, complete a bunch of wells next week or, you know, in two months and you don't have the staff for it, just throw some money at it. The problem goes away, but you got to you got to recoup it on the back end. So in our simplistic view, we think that cost inflation on the service side is going to be a very uh, material factor yeah. in, in next year's CapEx. And the wild thing is, you know, because we were talking about this in, in our cost team is that uh, so in IHS market, there's these scenarios, right? And hopefully everyone uh, on listening to the podcast is familiar, but very roughly speaking, it's kind of, it's three narratives that we set out and there's a huge quantitative fact base below that. And every team has to kind of uh, align the research with those scenarios. And there's one scenario, which is called green rules. So the idea is that by 2050, the world shifts uh, materially towards renewable sources of energy. And so we had to you know, we had to say, what do we think is going to happen to services? And this is global now. And the the immediate reaction is to say, well, pricing is going to fall off a cliff. But the thing is, if there is any demand for oil and gas, you need service companies to pr- to provide that service. And no one's going to price below the marginal cost of del- delivery for a long time. And so you end up in a in a scenario where you may have less providers but your costs could still be going up because they have more competitive power than they did before. Sure. So I, I would agree with you, Reed, saying that like, uh, you know, in 2019, it was too much supply, cost going down. 2020, 
two now, I guess we're already in, it, it could be going up for a, vi- for a variety of reasons that might be counter to what people might uh, might just think immediately, basically. So so follow up, kind of, I guess, just for, for precision. I mean, that there's the, the, the cliche in an oil boom is that, you know, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a gold rush, it's not the people selling gold that make the money, it's the people selling shovels. Um, and, and the same is true, really, in, in an oil boom. And I don't think 22 is going to be a boom in the way that we've seen it in the past. But are we at a point, David, where that rent, that money goes, you know, this year has been high cash flows to the operators. Does that shift given the, I guess, the perceptions and things that you just described? Uh, so I guess just quick note, uh, that's the story of Levi's and some other uh, quite famous things, right? So, uh, you know, selling, it wasn't shovels mm-hmm. in this case, it was it was workwear. But, blue jeans. Uh, <laughs> yeah, blue jeans. No, so I, I think, yeah, it just, it is all, anyways, won't go down that, that tangent. But, uh, you know, what's interesting about, like, boom times now is that at the end of the, so for when oil price goes up, operators benefit. We know that. But the service companies only share in that wealth if the operators let them and work with them. And I think they have gotten so used to getting things for as cheap as possible. You know, I think service companies will have more pricing power than before, but are they going to share in that materially and proportionally the way that the operating companies do? Uh, no, I just don't don't see that happening because operator attitude and then just the fact that North America is so competitive. I mean, if you don't like one provider, you just pick up the phone and then someone else will service you well within, you know, 10, 15 minutes, basically. So I just th- th- there's that intermediary of like high fungibility and just expectations that I, I think that they may see some gains, but they're not going to see the same gains that the operator sees when oil price goes up 10 bucks a barrel. So for 22, we're, we're expecting, again, the operators to have a better business environment to, to be making more money, I guess. I think it's it's mixed. Again, we're talking relative, right? So yeah. we laid out a case where, yes, I mean, you can't have price or prices constantly going down as they have been. But I just I don't see a situation where the service company is now the one pounding the table and saying, no, we're not going to do this for you because, you know, you're not paying. I, I just... I have a hard time seeing that. They may have more power than they had before, but are they going to have the equivalent power that operating companies have had? I, I I have a hard time seeing that. Maybe Reed, do you have any any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I guess the real question is if you had to buy an index fund, you want USEMPs or, you know, service sector. And if I had to pick, I would probably go USEMPs. I think you're right. I I think you laid it out better than I've heard anybody else say it, which is producers get upside from price suppliers get upside from spending and just because price it used to be price goes up spending goes up but we've broken that relationship in the last couple of years so at this point the service side is completely beholden you know they've always been beholden to the operators but as operator behavior has changed they are becoming almost like indentured servants i mean it's not quite that bad but they have very their ability to control their destiny is greatly diminished because of the way operator behavior has changed their incentives have changed, their objectives have changed, their strategies have changed, and that's flown from their change in capital discipline uh, and and fiscal discipline. And so you're right, you know, there's a price could go to 120 bucks and service sector sees no change in their business. Price could go to 50 and service sector sees no change in their business. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot more potential upside for the producer. 
this yeah. year. I think there's still upside for the service side for the service companies, but it's it's I think it's disproportionately so for the producer. Do you have any thoughts on uh, on ducks? Because you know, to the extent that it costs less to to produce from a duck than like drill a whole new well, which means kind of less less potential revenue for a service company. What is your what's what's your view on those? Don't Let really me interrupt to just to define that as a drilled and uncompleted well for all the yeah. listeners now now wondering why we're talking about waterfowl. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say I haven't been to China to have duck in a couple of years. But uh, okay, so the DUCs, the drilled but uncompleted, really the way this works is there are two main things that have to happen to produce out of the, the ground you're standing on, which is you have to drill a well, and then you have to perforate and stimulate and complete the well. And so they're both strategic and oh, operational reasons to create or to increase or decrease your inventory of drilled but uncompleted. I mean, if you think about the typical life cycle of, of an operation or you think about typical work in progress, you drill complete and you're, you know, you, you drill a well and then you move that rig to the next one. A, a frat crew comes in, completes the first well, moves to the second, and they kind of move in, tan- in lockstep. Well, when we get weird price fluctuations or, or there's a reason to do different things, you can drill a well that you don't complete. And typically when you think about, let's say the average well in North America costs $7 million, the drilling component costs 30 to 40% and the completion component is the rest. So if I drill a well in 2021, I've spent that CapEx and then I get a new budget in 2022. And so I can artificially inflate my capital efficiency. I'm only spending 60 to 70% of the cost of a well to get 100% of the volumes this fiscal year. All right, so let's put that aside. That's what that's why we have DUCs. What do I think is going to happen? Those have primarily been converted. 2021 was a year of maximizing shareholder returns, really with um, operators proving to their investors and their their debt holders that they can be disciplined, that they can throw back those returns. And so that came from being as efficient with their capital as they could be, or that was one aspect, which means they've worked down most of those drilled but uncompleted. So we see a strong increase in drilling activity next year, even though the new wells turned to production will not follow that linear relationship. This year, we haven't had to drill as many because we've only had to complete. Next year, in order to keep this completion trend and growth going, we're going to have to put more drilling rigs out there. So, you know, I think that when I look at where we see upside in the service sector, the drilling market probably has more than the completion market, but I still think that the producer has has a lot more upside than than either of those aspects of the service side. And are you saying we should expect a lot of ducks by the end of 22? No, uh, we our outlook and our belief, and when we talk to producers, is you you always have sort of this work in progress just due to like, oh, I can get a drilling rig next month, but I can't get it completed for three months. So it's, it is technically a drill, but uncompleted. But as far as the strategic purpose for having drilled, but uncompleted, that's pretty much eroded by, uh, by first quarter of next year. Okay. So David, let's, you know, to take, take another scenario, lowercase s, that if, Say I want to grow, that, that everyone's saying I'm only going to grow 5%, uh, 10%, whatever it happens to be, and I want to grow more aggressively. Can I do that with the service sector capacity if I want it to just, you know, let everyone else sit back and play conservative and, and me outrun uh, my, my acreage or, or run hard on my acreage? 
is it physically possible for me to do that given the operating environment? Ah, so so uh, that's, so what you're asking is uh, if if an operator said I want to produce more, can they easily find service companies to to do their to do the work for them? Is that is there capacity out there to? Is there capacity and labor? I mean, I th- I think you have to nuance it a little bit because I mean I've heard stories. Okay, so for example, um, great resignation is a good example. I mean, there's a lot of turnover, and it's not one person is a direct replacement for another one. So if, if an experienced crew walks off and you replace them with people who are brand new, there's obviously a hit to efficiency, there's a hit to safety. Uh, but I would say all else being equal, I have not heard, even though there has to be some price escalation because it was just so low leading up to, to currently now, I, j- I have not heard any stories of anyone saying we were having trouble finding workers. I mean, you hear it all the time for, you know, fast food places, uh, you know, just out in the general consumer market, right? But I just, I have not heard, and maybe, you know, Reed, you've heard differently, but I just haven't heard of anyone saying that, you know, no one wants to rack or no one wants to run casing or anything like that. I just, I I haven't, haven't heard that. You know, I haven't heard that, but I will also say when I look at where that growth is, it's in private operators. And so I can go talk to a public operator that you know, is running 20 rigs across two or three assets, the two or three basins. A lot of the growth in that demand is private operators that are running, you know, one rig in the granite wash. And so to get a pulse on that is a little bit harder. I guess that that those situations would affect the industry as a whole. And I haven't heard it, but it may be because I'm talking to the guys with the deep pockets. Uh, and not the guys that are out there scraping and scrapping for anything they can get. You know, what's interesting, though, is you, you bring that up. And I read the report, I think, where there was mentioned is you have these like micro privates, which really is like one rig. Right. And mm-hmm. what's, what's interesting about that is that when you move from a paradigm where before uh, it was a large operator, right, that had this campaign, it's relatively easy to get your efficiencies going on both the operator side and the service provider side. But now if the market says that there's now thir- I'm just making this up now. So read you, you adjust me up or down, but if there's 30 or 40 companies running around, how do you build any efficiency out of that? If you're a service company, you're constantly, you know, you've got to like actually chase them as clients. Then you've got to move crews from one to the other. They're obviously not talking to each other, so you can't plan out. So that's actually a good point is there might be this dynamic of decreased efficiency because the whole market's been fragmented. Yeah. And it wasn't. Well, I did a look, over the summer, so this is dated, but I did a more detailed look, but just anecdotally, I think of like the 200 rigs running in horizontal rigs in the Permian, 34 were run by private operators operating one rig. So you think about that, Exxon, a year and a half, two years ago, was running 50 rigs in the Permian, right? So to your point, efficiencies of scale, we've got supply yards, we've got long-term planning, we've got Gantt charts and all this stuff, right? And now you've got a little bit smaller than that operation, but you know it's 34 individual companies that are having to be serviced in an unconsolidated manner that doesn't have some overarching clarity to, to how we do this. So you're right, the efficiencies have dropped. But also, I think that the companies that run 30 or 40 rigs, you know, the single entities probably have a little bit of negotiating power, <laughs> whereas, uh, you know, Bob's bait and drill company or Bob's bait and oil producer company probably can't swing the bat on the on the drilling company quite as well. So I think the point of what I'm of, of some of the things we've talked about is 
like the industry, the rise of private operators in the industry has really led to a different way of having to look at it. I remember several years ago when OECD, non-OECD oil demand exceeded OECD, right? So OECD companies or countries publish what their oil demand is and non-OECD don't. And so it's like, well, now we have half the global demand that we don't have a window into. And when you look at the rig market, we've got half the rig market uh, that we don't have a window into. More than half the rigs are run by privates, and and you know a lot of them, are, unless you're Mewborn or something, you're running two, three rigs, and you don't have the efficiency of scale. You don't have, um, you know, centralized operations. You don't have logistics and all at the same level as some of these larger companies, and so it's leading to cost inflation and probably an erosion of efficiency compared to where we were a couple of years ago. Yeah, and actually, as we're talking about this, I think that I mean. Yeah, let's check back next year about the private versus public because there's a whole array of consequences. I mean, imagine that you are one of these like one rig companies. You don't have necessarily the cash that a large company does. So if I'm a service company and I need cash, mm-hmm. who am I going to take a risk on? The one who's you know says I'll pay you when I pay you, or so I, I mean, there's this kind of balance. Like, yeah, I need to go find clients, but I also don't want to do work for someone who's not going to pay me when I need to get paid, right? And so I think. We call it private versus public, but then you could probably cut those two groups up several different ways. And each one of those categories is going to define how you act as a provider to those companies, basically. Yeah. So, Reed, you introduced uh, diversification uh, so somewhat casually there with Bob's bait and drilling kit uh, or whatever, as somebody who gets into fish and tackle uh, along with oil services equipment, which is an interesting business plan. And maybe when David is teaching MBA courses, you can kind of vet that on Shark Tank or something. Um, but diversification is a bit of a theme for us uh, within the oil and gas industry. And uh, I mentioned WPC a second ago, but Houston this week uh, seemed to rebrand itself as the energy transition capital of the world rather than the energy capital of the world and and all of the banners that they had downtown to advertise uh, WPC. As we're looking at the the U.S. oil and gas sector, we've seen big diversification efforts from some of the European majors uh, and and pressure on some of the the, the U.S. uh, majors as well to diversify. What types of steps, if any, do you see more of the independents and more of the onshore players taking in 22 as folks diversify? Is it only fishing tackle that the people are going to start getting into, or are we going to see more substantial changes? I really don't see Scott Sheffield going out and setting up like a night crawler uh, <laughs> shop. Um, I'll put it this way. This is going to be a, a little longer answer probably than than is appropriate. But look, when you think about what drives these companies to what it is, it's investors. And if U.S. investors want, you know, to invest in photovoltaic cells or wind energy, there are companies out there that do it. They're not going to push Scott Sheffield to go and do that. They've got other companies. So or or anything like that. So when we think about diversification, I don't think we're going to see U.S. independents really push to become energy companies. They're still oil and gas producers. I think we see diversification within the industry in two ways. One, we've seen this flurry of M&A activity. Largely, uh, I mean, you look at what happened in the Haynesville this year. It went. If you go back and look at what we wrote about the Haynesville earlier this year, it was this is the playground of private operators, and now it's the it's another playground of public operators. So, and it's not 
pure play Haynesville operators. It's it's Southwestern extending their inventory. It's Chesapeake extending inventory. It's it's companies that are trying to extend inventory. So we're seeing diversification across plays, which we haven't seen in a, in a little while. And then the other diversification is, uh, and and I I don't know how much to say because some of it, you know, you hear you hear rumors and you hear anecdotes of, well, maybe we want to go international. There's opportunities in the Middle East. There's opportunities in South America. And it's sort of like, well, if I've got a finite lifespan in North America unconventionals, but I'm really good at unconventionals, maybe I should find another place to put that skill set to work. So I hear talk about this and, and there are conversations and it's always one of those things that, you know, I think if, if we'd brought it up to CEOs five years ago, they would laugh at us. Um, and now we bring it up and, and nobody really says anything, but we don't get laughed at. And, and so you kind of get the sense, well, maybe maybe there's something out there where people are looking, they're contemplating. It's not as ridiculous of a thought as it was a few years ago. But as far as, you know, energy U.S. producers trying to get into the whole, you know, we want to electrify the grid or, or anything like that. I, these guys are EMP companies. They drill, they drill unconventional wells, and that's what they're going to do. Do we start to see a higher premium on gas uh, assets? What do you mean? In the sense that oil, you know, that, that oil has been the focus of a lot of drilling activity and having an oily portfolio as we look at lower carbon portfolios, does having a gas-weighted portfolio start to make more sense? You know, I haven't heard that uh stated when we talk to these guys about why they make the decisions they do i will say that we've started to see um you know i think it was four years ago we talked about specialization where you went from having assets in multiple basins to only being in a single basin you went to being an oil and gas company to being an oil or gas company we're starting to see that that swing back to diversification, you know, you look at the Cabot Simrex deal and, and it's like, okay, now we've got optionality, which four or five years ago was not what operator, it was not what the investment community wanted. I don't think they're doing it for a decarbonization purpose. They're doing it for uh, strategic purposes. All right. David, how about on the services side? Yeah, there's so much to say here. Um, you know, I guess just I'll start with Reed's point and, and, you know, there's an expert team for this. But like I just market's view is that oil is not going to zero. I mean, it's not to say that other forms of energy aren't coming into play. But if you are an oil company and you're looking for some validation that there will be demand out there, our data set, IHS Markets data set says that, yes, there will be, right? So it is a rational thing to be in the oil business at this point. I think the question is, is, is how do you do that? And, you know, these transitions work best, where, as Reed was saying, you're playing to your core strength. So I'll, I'll bring it back to the consumer markets now. Uh, you know, Hill, you're a runner. My wife's a runner. Garmin, right? Garmin used to make, uh, like, nav systems for cars. And when Android started deploying, you know, uh, free directions on their phones, you'd be like, well, this company's toast, but they made a pivot to sports and running gear. And I think they're doing quite well now. So if I am a service company, bringing this back to oil and gas, if I kind of do what I was doing, but applied slightly, slightly differently, that can work. So for example, carbon capture uh, is, is mm -hmm. a, a big potential market now. You know, if I took the oil out of the ground because I understood the poor space, then who else better to help you put it back into the ground because <laughs> I understand the poor space. And so you are seeing some of the larger service companies diversify, again, playing to what their strengths are. But 
would one of these service companies make a complete 90 degree pivot out of oil and gas? It's tough to say because ultimately on paper, a joule of energy is a joule of energy, but it's very different if it's solar if it, and if it's oil. You can't just say, well, I make oil joules and therefore I can make solar joules. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's not impossible. I'm not going to say no one's made such a hard pivot or no one can, but mm-hmm. it's very difficult. So I think the short answer is that yes, service companies are trying to go where they predict or where they are hearing their operator clients will go. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to imagine someone diving feet first into it and saying, yeah, I have no interest in the oil business anymore and uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. It's just, it's difficult to, to see that happen. Put open up a bait and tackle shop. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, you do go fishing on oil wells when things go bad. It's not quite, it's not quite as pleasurable as just kind of sitting in a stream. But uh, yeah, it's not it's not a totally terrible analogy either. No. All right. Well, that's so, so, so those were my kind of big, big questions on our 2022 uh, outlook. So thank you both. And just to kind of rehash, you know, we, we will look, David, to, to see if you found the fountain of youth and we will watch closely to see that the world does read that which he does not want to do for himself. Uh, and, and hopefully uh, all of us have a good 22. The uh, I, I guess, you know, last year we, we asked, would, would 21 be better uh, than 20? And, and there was unanimity that 21 would be the better year. I, I assume everybody is uh, hopeful again that, that 22 will be better than 21. I think it will be, but uh, I don't think the to go back to, to David's point at the beginning, I don't think the delta will be as large between 21 and 22 as it was this year and, and last year. I think that's uh, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, better, I guess it's hot. You know, I'll take it back to the business school case and consulting, you know, better is relative. So what's your starting point and what's your end point? You know, um, if your starting point is 2019 and you want to go back to how it was before COVID, I guess that's one way of seeing it. But uh, I'm, you know, I, I like how things have turned out for me personally overall on balance. So I think they'll be better. But uh, at the same time, um, that's for me, and um, and hopefully everyone feels the same way. Like everyone's, I guess, I'll wrap this up kind of simply is that I heard recently that disappointment is the space between expectation and reality. So I hope that whatever it is that you have done or, and are doing, uh, you know, like the expectation met your reality and that wasn't in fact better, basically, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that, and maybe that's a good place to leave, that that everybody must lower our expectations as we go into 2022, and that will ensure that we have a fantastic 22. All right, well, thank you both, and and I look forward to doing this uh, again next year, hopefully. Absolutely. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.